Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I felt like there was something really wrong that this guy was getting under this, you know, four or five, six hundred pound machine and nobody was telling him that that he shouldn't be. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this afternoon? Um, I am pretty good, Steve, but I I have to confess to you that I am a plant murderer. I got <laughs> I got really into one of my COVID things was like I got really into house plants during um, especially during the winter, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then I especially as the weather's gotten nicer. I don't, I just got really lazy and I took them all outside on like my patio to water them all at once. And then I just left them out there for a while. It was like a beautiful day. I mass murder. I killed almost all of them. <laughs> that doesn't sound like there's any intent, just so, sort of negligence. Yeah. Yeah. Accidental mass murder. So, so I have a story to tell when I was a child, uh, I, my mom loved plants and she, she had a green thumb and loved gardening. And, uh, and I had heard how, if you played music to them or whatever, it helps your plants and they grow nicer. So I was in my, you know, devious child mind, I thought, well, if you do the opposite, I wonder if you could kill a plant. So I, I literally went up to a, one of her plants and every day just said like, die plant die <laughs> and, and, and like after like about three weeks of doing it it started to wilt it started, it started to go down and my mom like quickly swooped in and saved it but uh it, but you know I, I think it does work you know if you uh if you're negative negative energy towards the plant yeah you know, hurt it so yeah so we're so hysterical. we're bo we're both plant murderers is <laughs> yeah, what you're exactly, saying but you exactly. but you did it on purpose I, I was a minor I was a minor so uh, <laughs> okay <laughs> you were a juvie plant, and, and we can, you know, I think we can talk to our to our guests this uh, this time about uh, some defenses for our our plant uh, shenanigans. Because uh, not only does he do civil cases, but I know that John Martin also uh, has a criminal trial practice and does some criminal uh, work. Is that right, John? Yeah, I actually haven't um, I haven't done too much criminal over the last uh, couple of years, but that's how I cut my teeth. I did a lot of criminal work to start. And and what would be your take on Yvonne's plant murder that she just admitted to <laughs> well, I, one air recording? <laughs> I, I thought that, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head. There may be some negligence there, certainly not intent. I think you're going to have a lot of problems, Steve. Yeah, that's uh, right. There's, there's a lot of intent and, uh, and maybe a pattern. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh well. Well, John, let me uh, let me just welcome you to the show. I want to tell everybody that John is a partner at KJC Law Firm with offices in Boston and Worcester, uh, Massachusetts, and um, and you can look him up at KJC lawfirm.com. Uh, as I said already, John has, uh, has uh, tried a number of cases in both the criminal and civil arena. Um, the case that we're going to be talking about was the fourth largest verdict in New England for 2018. Uh, I understand, John, that you were uh, successful in getting some, I think, drug test results thrown out uh, it, uh, related to some sort of a lab scandal in uh in massachusetts that happened uh, happened years ago and and you were one of the first to do that is that right oh that's funny yeah yeah annie duke and that was a big scandal in massachusetts and um my client david daniele was the first person whose conviction was vacated and he was released from prison as a result of oh her. wow 
non-compliance with the, well, as a result of her fraud. Yeah. Yeah. But he, um, was, he was the first one that got let out. I am so excited about this because I just, maybe like two weeks ago, I watched the Netflix documentary about it. Um, oh, you did? So if you blinked, you would have missed me, but I made like a four second cameo in episode number two where my friend, you know, he'd be a great guest. My friend, George Papa Christos was kind of the star of episode two. Was I was going to ask if you were on it. Oh man. What's it's the crazy. name of that? I'm going to have to watch that. What is the name of that, Yvonne? Like how to fix a drug scandal. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a play on making of a murder. I think it was how to make a drug lab scandal or making a drug lab, drug lab scandal. Wow. Wow. It's crazy, Steve. It's uh, like, I don't know how I didn't hear about it at the time. How to, how to fix a drug scandal. It's on Netflix. Um, and it involves like two different lab, it covers two different lab, um, people. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, anyway. Yeah, it was interesting. So Annie Dukin was out towards Boston and nobody ever really figured out what she was doing other than she wanted to be somebody. Right. And then out West, the, the, um, the lab analyst was actually an addict. He was stealing oh drugs for her own use. Yeah. Oh, wow. So two completely different scenarios. Um, and, and to this day, no one really knows why uh, Annie Dukin did what she did. It's, yeah, it's the, unfathomable. Yeah, the show really focused on um, the the second person, the person with addiction issues. I uh, um, the Netflix series did anyway, and you are left with this impression with the first one, like she was like known for like churning out these results, but you kind of don't get at least watching it. I you don't you don't get understand why, but so that's just really where it was left. John is nobody really is sure exactly what why. Yeah, I mean, she she took a plea, so she never had to explain herself to anyone. But basically, she was churning out eight or nine hundred percent more lab results than anyone else. She was lying about her credentials. She was really doing everything she could to be part of the prosecutorial team, but she got nothing out of it. She got she made no money. She made no she she. There's like no rhyme or reason mm -hmm. to why she did it, other than. She wanted to be the best, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, the, her motives never yeah, came out. That's crazy. That's that crazy. is wild. And so she did the analysis as part of the case that we're going to talk about today. No. Or no, uh, no, different one. No, 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 no. Different totally one. Different. <laughs> oh, it was a criminal case, right? Yeah, it was Sorry. a criminal case. Sorry, well, my I, bad, I, my I, bad. I, I, that was just me touting, uh, touting okay. John's, uh, what, what he's done in his career. Uh, Sorry, uh, I got too excited. I yeah. just like totally derailed <laughs> us. <laughs> No, Sorry. it's cool. I'm happy to talk about that one too. That one was right. fun. <laughs> um, well, also, uh, John, so John is a graduate from uh, Suffolk University Law School and um, was a two-time New England champion for their of uh, the national trial competition that I think is done by AAJ in both 2008 and 2009, and is now an adjunct faculty uh, professor at Suffolk University Law School and uh, and coaches their mock trial team, right? You know, I actually got to correct that. I stopped coaching about a year or two oh, ago, okay, uh, but okay. I did, I did coach for like a decade afterwards. Um, it's yeah. a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I've done it before. I did it for high school teams, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it is a lot of work. Ton of, ton of work. Yeah. Once things started really getting busy with my son, I kind of backed off and let the next generation come in, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's really uh, a good, good experience. 
Yeah. 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 Well, John, we just want to welcome you to the show again. uh, You can look up John at kjclawfirm.com. So the case, let me give a quick overview of the case that we're going to be talking about. And John, you can correct me where I've uh, messed things up. But the name of the case is uh, Brian and Patricia Goodrich. Also, their daughters were named in the case um, uh, versus is Garlock Equipment Company, Inc., Simline, Inc. There were some other defendants named in there, but I think the case actually went to trial against just Simline and Garlock Equipment Company and um, or Garlock Equipment Company. I want to make sure I'm saying that right. Uh, and this case involved a severe brain injury that happened to uh, Brian Goodrich when he was changing the oil on a Simline Magma 110 asphalt melter applicator. And uh, I had to look this up to uh, John uh, sent us a picture of it. And, uh, and but I wanted to look it up just so I could see what it does. And and this is, uh, it, I mean, it does basically what it says it, it melts asphalt, and then you apply it uh, when you're so when you're fixing the um, cracks in the road, it, you have like this little wand that sort of sprays the asphalt in there. And so that's, uh, that's what the the um, product was in this case. Uh, and we're going to talk about the fact that what actually failed that caused the brain injury here was not manufactured by either Simlock or, or Garlock, uh, Simline or Garlock. And, um, and so makes for an interesting product liability trial, uh, when they're not the manufacturer of the actual thing that, that failed. And what failed was a, uh, a detachable tongue jack, uh, that essentially, uh, I want to make sure I get all this right, but but basically part of the jack was attached to the A-frame of the uh, asphalt melter. Uh, and then uh, the other part of the jack was detachable. And if you needed to raise up the, um, the uh, asphalt melter, you would put a... Uh, a pivot tube into what a uh, pivot mount that was welded to the A-frame. And then you're supposed to make sure that it stays attached by using a pivot pin that, that stays in there and make sure it doesn't slip out of place. Um, and so what happened with Brian uh, is that he was changing the oil on this, um, on the asphalt melter, which you're supposed to do every 400 hours or so. Um, it, it, it was unclear whether or not uh, a pivot pin was used or whether or not it slipped out. Uh, but in any event, somehow the, uh, when, when he had it jacked up, he, he got under it and, and we're going to get into some of the warnings, uh, here. Um, but it, he had to raise it up, had to get under it in order to, uh, to do the oil change and to, in order to get to the, uh, the plug for the, uh, for the engine oil. And, um, and when he sort of, used his uh, wrench to open it up. It uh, became displaced, fell on his uh, head and crushed his skull. And he was severely brain injured, uh, lived, but uh, with just a catastrophic brain injury. Um, And the manufacturer of the actual, uh, I had it written down here, Sequent, I think it is. Yeah, this uh, sequent tongue jack uh, was the actual jack that failed. And the interesting thing about this case is, is that the sequent tongue jack came with warnings about how you're never supposed to use it without the pivot pin. And even if you have the pivot pin in, you're not supposed to put any part of your body under um, the, you know, the load that you're lifting. And this could lift up to 5,000 pounds. Um, But the way that this uh, asphalt melter was manufactured is that there was no way to change the oil 
without getting underneath the asphalt melter because it sat about two and a half inches off the ground. So you wouldn't be able to get there, get under there and change the oil without getting under it. They, of course, uh, the manufacturers or Simline and, and, and Garlock did not include the warnings or the instructions from Sequent, um, which said, one, always use the pivot pin and two, never put any part of your body under it. Uh, they didn't, they didn't include that when you bought the asphalt, uh, melter. So, um, so it was a really interesting products case, um, for, I mean, the main part of the, the, the case from at least my perspective sounded like a failure to warn, uh, claim. Although I, I saw that you did have a defect claim as well. Um, but, um, uh, but you know, the fact that the warnings were there from sequent, but then the manufacturer didn't pass those warnings along to the user. Um, so just a really interesting, um, uh, case there, there was a number of hurdles uh, here, which we're going to talk about as we go through it. Uh, but the verdict ended up in a total, uh, a total amount of $11,618,700, uh, 9,154,150 of that went to Brian for his injuries. Uh, and then $1,056,250 went to his wife, Patricia, uh, for, uh, loss of consortium. And then his daughters, uh, Sydney and Savannah, uh, each split a $1,408,300, uh, $300, uh, loss of consortium claim as well for a total verdict of $11,618,700. So, um, so John, just tremendous work on, on the case. Um, you, you know, I, I think one of the first things that popped out at me, um, was in, and we're, I want to talk about a lot of this, but part of your, um, your judgment in the case had a significant amount of prejudgment interest in it. And I was just wondering what is it about Massachusetts law? Like, like for instance, the actual award to Brian was six million five hundred thousand, but then he had two million six hundred fifty-four thousand dollars of prejudgment interest uh, added onto that. So, how, how does that port part of the law work? Yeah, we have a, a nice prejudgment interest statute where it's twelve percent per year wow. automatically. And and you and that's not tied to any type of a demand or anything like that. Now, from the moment you file suit until the moment you get your verdict. Uh, you're collecting 12%. We were in federal court. Once you collect the verdict, as you're waiting for appeal, that switches to the federal interest rate in the federal court. But in state court, that interest continues to accrue throughout the appeal. Yeah. Hey, and that is one thing I forgot to mention. This was tried in July of 2018. The incident, uh, the injury happened on April 22nd, 2013. And uh, it was tried up in the uh, United States District Court of Massachusetts uh, in the Boston division. Is that right, John? We were actually in the Wista. Wista. Yeah. Wista. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, John, so you sort of gave us an overview of, of some of the issues with this case. Um, you know, uh, an, a number of things. One, one is, is that you're suing a manu you're, you're suing a manufacturer for a product that they didn't design or manufacture. Um, so I talk about that uh, a little bit and how you uh, sort of pursued that theory. Sure. So um, your summary was incredible, but there was actually one fact that was a little bit different. So Sequent manufactured the jack that had originally been sold with the machine. Okay, but the that's machine right. 
the jack that was being used when Brian was injured was actually something that Brian had made himself in his own shop. Okay. And I so, did, yeah, I did see that, that you said that he used a, um, um, where did I see that? It was, it was, it was, it was some other type of, um, of Jack that was okay to use that Jack. And I, but he had made it himself, huh? Yeah. He literally, so this was like, Brian's a man's man, Harley right. Davidson running a company, building his own, uh, equipment and everything. Like he, he is a, a true craftsman. So yeah, he just built his own Jack. Wow. And that's wow. what he was using at the time that he was injured was a Jack that he himself created. So a big part of the defense case was, uh, you know, we didn't manufacture the thing that failed. Right. Yeah. And this was his machine, right? Like he had, he had bought this, um, he had bought the machine itself um, himself. Correct. He brought it, he brought it bare new with all, um, you know, manufactured warrantied parts. And then as parts aged, he would often repair them and replace them himself with things that he fabricated himself. He was a really talented welder. Got it. And and then this issue of the pivot pin, um, did you ever find out what, did he just forget to put the pivot pin in or did it, it was it not in, or did it slip out somehow? We believe that he forgot to put the pivot pin in. Um, his, uh, his employee was present at the time. Uh, and he said that they had never checked to see if the pin was there. They just assumed it was there. What happened was the prior November, they closed up the shop for the season. They did all the winterizing. They dropped this thing outside. They left it there. Then come April, they're doing their routine maintenance before they get back to work. They picked it up with a bobcat, brought it inside from the shop, set it down and started changing the oil. So he thought that the pin must have been misplaced in November. Okay. Gotcha. When I saw that part of your, uh, part of your theory, at least in the complaint was that, uh, the pivot pin was tethered onto, um, we're supposed to be tethered on and that the tether could get broken and the pin could get lost Would mm -hmm. that. So would that have been tethered onto the A-frame of the, uh, asphalt melter then that it was, is that what it was tethered to? No. So if you've ever seen um, like a boat trailer, right. the, type of, the type of jack that they attached to this asphalt melter is exactly the type of jack that they attach to boat trailers. And then there's just this little like pin, this little, uh, little chain, really, really thin, almost like kids costume jewelry that attaches the safety pin to the jack. Problem is the pin is like the pivotal right. safe. It's called the pivot pin for a reason. It is the safety design of this jack right it, it's, it's what keeps them from from slipping out because basically you have this pivot tube that sits inside the mount and you know when you're putting force on it like you might have to when you're pulling the uh the, the um engine plug or engine oil plug off uh it can move it and, and cause it to fall out but um but right. yeah so you need that pin yeah and you know and, and you mentioned the warnings sequent knows that like this is the perfect jack for a boat because there's really no reason to ever go underneath a boat when it's in the trailer you right know, the problem with using that type of jack for the asphalt melter is if you want to change the oil you got to get underneath it and okay. sequent says right in their instructions first do not sell this jack <laughs> without right. providing the instructions and number two don't ever go underneath anything that's being held up by this jack. Like that's not what this is for. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. 
Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now. Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. I'm interested to hear if there was uh, a motion practiced by the defense and, and how that played out. But I, I guess uh, just being ex uh, skeptic a little bit is if he fabricated this Jack himself, it seems like there would be an argument that, well, he didn't include a pen on there. Um, mm -hmm. And so how did you overcome that? Uh, if that was an argument? Sure. Oh, yeah, no, that was um, that came up at 12 B6. That came up at summary judgment. It came up pre-trial. It came up post-trial. So basically, the there were two theories. One is that the jack actually comes in two parts. One is the thing that everybody knows about. It's a round cylinder with a floor plate, and that's the jack. And you use a hand, you know, a hand crank to make it go up and down. But the second part is the tube that the jack fits into. And that tube is on an iron square plate that actually gets welded to the, um, to the A-frame. So the first theory was that that part that was welded to the A-frame was provided by the manufacturer, and that was part of the defect. Uh, and then the second one, and this was the primary theory, was that 
it was negligent and unreasonably unsafe to de design a product you need to go under to, to um, change the oil without providing instructions about how to do that safely. Right. And without providing the equipment to do that safely. So what? our theory was kind of like, it doesn't matter what jack you use, you've designed it improperly. There is right. no jack that would allow you to do this safely. So, so almost part of your, your uh, defect or design claim is about the fact that you have to get under it in order to change the oil. So they, they could have made a better way to change the oil. I mean, well, first of all, yes, that was definitely the, the thrust of the theory. As far as whether or not there was a better way to change the oil, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's possible. I think that there's a lot of gravity involved in changing oil yeah, from my right. limited experience. Yeah. Uh, but really, all you have to do is, and uh, Garlock and Simline sell products like this, is that rather than attaching a sidewinder on the side of the A-frame, you just put a triangular jack at the center of the A-frame. And then right. that can never, that can never fall off. It can never be moved. It can never, you can never forget it. You can never forget the pin. You cannot go under that, that jack or that trailer uh, in an unsafe way. I, I was wondering what did the, um, did Simline or Garlock include any type of instructions on how you're supposed to change the oil? And if they did, what did that say? They did provide instructions in a fairly large um, owner's manual. It basically focused on, you know, we, you know, where is the cap? Where is the drip pan? Where to place the drip pan? For safety, um, it focused more on chalking the tires, <clears throat> excuse me, blocking the tires with chalk blocks. Uh, but it didn't state anything about how to uh, appropriately keep the, the trailer elevated. Yeah, I, I would think that some of your cross-examination of the corporate reps might be interesting if you're showing them what sequent the jack manufacturer is saying about not getting under there. And then how are you supposed to change the oil without getting under there? Yeah, that was that was the cross basically for the 30B6 witnesses. And also, um, we had evidence from sequent that they provided when this company bought the jacks in bulk. They provided the jacks and they did provide the instructions in bulk. So a big part of the cross-examination was what did you do with all the warnings that they sent you? Right, right, exactly. Got it. And what did they do? Right. <laughs> Their vice president of sales said that they gently placed them in the recycle. <laughs> <laughs> gently, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's literally what he said. We had to ask him four times and he finally said we gently placed them in the recycling. Gently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that makes a difference. Um, um, the alleged recycling bin. <laughs> right. But that does, but that brings us to a different problem, a different hurdle you had in this case, which is that you didn't have any other similar incidents, right? For a significant period of time, you basically didn't have evidence that someone else was was injured doing this. Yeah, that was a big problem. Um, and they really, they really hit that drum uh, and they did a good job with it. But I think something like 36,000 of these machines had been sold by these manufacturers over the lifetime of the product. And there were no prior incidents that we could find. And then their competitors sold at least that much collectively. And nobody could find any similar incidents there either. 
Got it. We had pretty good evidence of similar jacks uh, or similar setups failing with other products, but those were not uh, admitted into evidence. It was Okay. Right. Well, well, John, to to add to um, some of the uh, difficulties of this case, n- not only the fact that you uh, didn't have any evidence of any other incidents or this happening to anybody else, um, my understanding is that your uh, client uh, came back positive for marijuana in his system as well. Yeah, well, you know, that was a really dirty tactic, I thought. Um, he did test positive for marijuana when he was at the emergency room. This incident happened at 7.30 in the morning and, you know, marijuana can stay in your system for like weeks, if not, if not more than a month. Um, so they tried to suggest that he'd been, um, you know, high when the incident happened, but everybody was like, listen, this is the most straight laced, hardcore, all work, no play type of guy. So that really got blown out of the water. Uh, but yeah, they tried. They tried yeah. to make it look like he was high when it happened. Well, and that, so, that's one of those things that can backfire on you. I mean, you know, especially if you've got a bunch of people who work with him and say, look, no, this is a no nonsense guy. He takes it very seriously. Then then it just looks like you're just trying to deceive the jury. That was our goal. And I think that we succeeded in that. And basically everyone said the same thing, that this guy was really, really tough and really serious about his business. And he was incredibly successful. I mean, he was a really successful entrepreneur. And there were two things that he did. Number one was he ran his business like a business. He was a really good businessman. And number two was his equipment was maintained meticulously. The motorcycles, the tractors, the trucks, the equipment, like this guy, he's the exact opposite of me. He knows how to take care of stuff. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, Steve, that reminds, I mean, that's something we talk about a lot when you suddenly will have, you know, whether it's, you know, it's your client and it's because they were taken in the emergency room or whatever it is, you've got something on the toxicology and there's always this strategic decision of, you know, especially when they can't show impairment or when they don't have an expert linking it up to impairment, you know, do you challenge it or do you let them kind of, you know, go there and potentially look bad and, 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 you know, not be able to link it up to anything that actually caused the incident and, and maybe, um, you know, alienate some of the jury. It's so funny you mentioned that because that's the exact debate that we had and we decided to just leave it out there and see if they bet and they bet. Yeah. 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 And they bit in the worst way. They brought it up when they were cross-examining his wife. Oh, oh. Yeah. <sighs> Probably one of the nicest, most lovable, just wonderful people you've ever met and talk about stepping on a landmine. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's just so many, uh, I mean, from a defense standpoint, there's so many better ways to bring it up than, than with his uh, spouse. I mean, there's, there's no reason to do that with her. Right. I mean, especially because you like, I mean, I remember when I first started practicing and getting used to the difference between when those folks are being deposed, like when the wife is being deposed versus what they do with the wife on the stand at trial, which is usually almost nothing, especially if that person didn't actually, you know, witness the incident itself and is, you know, more of a damages witness or, or whatever. Um, and it's because I, f- I feel like that's always the smart move because it's so easy to, to get wrong footed in that area. So to kind of do any cross at all, I feel like, is scary, but then to do it about something like that, um, 
which makes me think, Steve, I don't know if you wanted to talk about it later, but one of the other interesting issues that you had yeah. in your case, which is that um, his wife at, at the time, at the time of trial, it sounds like was in a, was in a different relationship, was in a new relationship. Yeah. So that was really interesting because a lot of people um, told us that, that we should drop the loss of consortium claim. And she was very worried about it as well. But so, so the way it happened was um, Brian was her high school sweetheart. They got married right out of high school. They started having a family. They ran the business together. Uh, And then at, but at this point in her life, she was basically Brian's caregiver. Uh, he has the you know mentality of a of a young adolescent, and then you know he's he's not a, a partner or a spouse anymore. And she's um, early to mid forties, and just you know wants somebody to connect with and communicate with. And so she was very open to it. She was afraid that they were going to attack her. Um, a lot of people told us not to bring that claim. And um, I really get to know them well. And I was like, again, I think that this is going to blow up in their face because yeah. this is a really nice woman who's going through hell, just trying to have like the basic fundamental human connections in her life that we all take for granted. Yeah. So we really <clears throat> argued that and prepped that for direct, for cross, for the argument. And I, I think that the... I think it went really well. It's one of the larger loss of consortium verdicts I've I've actually heard about, at least in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a great as a as a reminder. It was what seven hundred and fifty thousand plus the three hundred and six thousand ish for um for the prejudgment interest, mm-hmm. um, which is a is a great result, you know, and. So I'm just interested because I do think a lot of people probably would make that would have been really scared of it or would mm-hmm. have made the decision. We're going to drop that claim. We don't, it's too risky, whatever. In terms of, of how you, how you presented that to the jury and like help them understand what the situation really was. Did you really do that all through her testimony or was there something else that you did? We did it through her and we did it through the daughters and we did it through her mother-in-law. We did it through Brian's mother. And basically from the daughters and the mother-in-law, it was like, how did you find out about this? And it was, you know, she told us. And then it was like, and how did you feel? And they all admit we were angry. We felt betrayed. We wanted her to be like, you know, a caregiver for the rest of her life. And it was an adjustment. And they all talked about how they went through this adjustment with her. And a lot of the family didn't. A lot of the family continued to hold resentments against her. But her mother-in-law and her daughters finally came to realize that she's suffering just like them. And she's a human. And she needs somebody to talk to and somebody to connect with and somebody to be, you know, intimate with. And all of these things that are so meaningful in life that was taken from her. Um. And honestly, during the testimony, uh, jurors were crying. And during the closing argument, jurors were crying because what Brian's wife said was, I hate myself a little bit every day because part of me thinks I shouldn't be doing this. I should be completely devoted to being this caregiver person. And I should stop thinking about vacations and dates and holidays and, you know, all these things. And she's like, and the other part of me realizes that um, I now understand how fragile life is, how fast everything mm-hmm. can get taken away, and I want to seize it. So 
everybody was really upfront about that whole journey they went through with resentment and anger and doubt and shame. And, and uh, it was really compelling, but the most important thing for me is it was her truth and it was her family's truth. And some smarmy lawyer didn't come in and say, we can't bring your claim because you have the audacity to have an adult relationship, you know, but uh, I think that she really appreciated that somebody was willing to take, take her story. Yeah. So uh, out of curiosity, after she started this relationship with this other person, was she still caregiving for Brian? Oh, absolutely. Brian, Brian knew him and the guy was really nice to her kids and was really nice to Brian. There was nothing secretive about this. Like Brian had no qualms. Brian had no interest in being married anymore. He had no desire for an adult relationship with her. And that brings us to the point. We didn't really talk about this. Uh, I mean, we, we said it was a catastrophic brain injury. What was his level of cognition and, um, and how, how, how bad was the injury and how did it sort of manifest itself? You know, it was about as catastrophic as it could be. It's been a long time since I've looked through the neuropsych reports. Uh, but basically he was blind in one eye. Um, he was, uh, well below functional in every every possible cognitive test. Um, he had short-term memory problems, long-term memory problems, difficulty with uh, word recall. Um, he was he was very very disabled. Okay, but he but he was verbal and could express himself and and um, and obviously knew what his relationship with his wife was and his and his kids and things like that. It, so yes, he was verbal. It was unclear how much of the relationship he remembered and understood versus how much he was learning as he was going. Right. Um, so he would definitely say, I know Patty and Patty is my wife, but it was always unclear if he was actually recalling memories or if he was being kind of affirmatively responsive to questions. Uh, put it this way, he was allowed to testify, but the court never actually put him under oath. Um Okay. More is like a demonstrative, like just to see, you know, how he is, not that you're listening to anything like he's uh, swearing to tell the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Just just kind of demonstrative. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when he testified, um, he did not remember his daughter's ages or, or their birthdays. Like yeah. he, was, he was very significantly impaired. That's heartbreaking. What was his... Um, in terms of, you know, so that sort of covers what his sort of mental impairment was or his cognitive impairment. What sorts of things, I mean, I know he needed basically around the clock care or at least, you know, caregiving somebody to be around him. What sorts of things did he need assistance with? Because it sounds like he went from being this really on it, you know, um, do it yourself kind of guy to really Mm -hmm. needing help with quite a lot. Yeah, so he was improving and he really worked at it, but he was getting to the point where he could make himself some simple meals. Um, he <laughs> he was very adamant about driving and was taking driving uh, tests. Wow. So there was, there was, and in fact, I, it didn't come up a lot, but I think that he was driving <laughs> okay. uh, from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so he was really, and, and, you know, brain injuries are often so perplexing. Yeah. Um, he was somebody who couldn't be overnight by himself because there's just too much opportunity for harm, but he could spend six or seven hours 
uh, safely and care for himself, use the bathroom, get dressed, um, uh, eat, all that sort of stuff. But he wouldn't think of anything constructive. He would just watch TV and his, his family didn't want that. So it was, it was difficult to assess what he needed other than he needed somebody to keep him safe mm-hmm. and he needed somebody to help him keep learning things and developing things and stay engaged. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. And one thing we haven't talked about is he, so his daughters also had a loss of consortium claim. Is that yes. because they were minors at the time? And uh, I guess how much were they involved in the, the caregiving aspect uh, uh, for him? Yeah. So they were, they were really interesting um, because at the time they were adults, but they were minors when it happened. And the older daughter was actually only, she turned 18 about three or four months after the, the injury. Um, so they were very involved in the caregiving in, you know, in proportion to their lives at the time, like that the high schooler was home more than the college aged one, but when the college aged one was home, they were very active. Um, they were both very committed to being his future caregivers as necessary. Um, but they were also really interesting, um, relationship arguments because the dynamics of their relationships with Brian were so different. How so? So the younger one, Sydney, I mean, she got, she was only like a freshman or a sophomore when I met her. She was like um, Brian's right-hand, right-hand girl. They were two peas in the pod. He loved motorcycles. She loved motorcycles. She wanted to work on the equipment. Like dad was her best friend. Yeah. And she lost her best friend. Now, the older daughter was just about to move away to college, was super independent, 
um, was more interested in like finance and business and things like that. Um, so they, they butted heads, which is you know pretty common as kids are going into that yeah. transition into adulthood. So they were having a lot of arguments, a lot of fights, just like all kids with their parents, the more similar you are, sometimes the more you fight. So whereas um, Sydney had lost her best friend, Savannah was left with this incredible remorse about that they were arguing all the time. She wasn't necessarily as nice to him as she wished that she was. She didn't have that chance to go from being kind of a pain in the ass teenager to an adult peer with her dad. Right. Uh, and it weighed on her. She was she was terrified of, of taking the stand because she felt guilty about the fact that they'd argued. And it's like, you know, you can tell somebody over and over, that was normal. We all did that. That's right. But until you've actually lost the opportunity to have the, the reconciliation that comes later, that so that really graded on her. And we had to spend a lot of time preparing her for the fact that, you know, this is something that happened to you, not something that happened because of you. Mm -hmm. um, but right up until two days before she took the stand, I wasn't sure that she would actually testify. I thought that she might back out. And then she ended up coming in and was one of the, you know, the best witnesses I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's something, it's one of the weird parts of, about this job. One of the hard parts about this job that I feel like you're not really prepared for by um, law school or really necessarily anything else is that in, in addition to sort of, especially when you go all the way forward to trial, in addition to the fact that you're meeting a family that's gone through something horrible is this kind of balance that you have to have when you're trying the case where, you know, the family's like still grieving, they're going through something terribly emotional, even if that person has, has, you know, survived their their mm. lives have changed and you've you're trying to figure out you know the best thing to do for the case but also the best thing to do for them and where they are in the grieving process and I, I feel like that can be um so tricky and I, I've been in that same situation where there was someone who was really upset a family member and it was like the night before and I was like I, I at that time she really did not want to testify to the jury and I wasn't sure what she was going to decide yeah. yeah, no, you you hit the nail on the head. And honestly, I don't understand if you just have a client or a family come in, you know, a week or two, come into your office a week or two beforehand. I don't under, understand how you unravel all of this, because one of the most compelling pieces of evidence in the case was this thing that the family never wanted to admit, which was that they loved Brian and they wanted to care for him. But when they went out places in public with him, he was doing and saying things that were very embarrassing. And it it hurt so much to admit that. Mm -hmm. But it was really, really important for the jury to understand that this is not like a one and done. And now we're just going to go, you know, now we're, we're just going to go be a happy new type of family. This is something that's going to continue to cause trouble for him and trouble for them for the rest of their lives. And I don't see how you can have people telling you about these types of really deep personal issues and deep personal feelings and considering saying them publicly if you don't have a really, really close relationship with them. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't see how you can do that. Yeah. And if we didn't have that with them, 
you know, I don't know what happens with that story if you don't know what's really going on. In this yeah. Yeah. And it, right. and it takes time spending time with the family, with all of them, just yeah. getting to know them. I mean, that's how you really and, and getting them comfortable with opening up to you. Um, cause that's not always the easiest thing for them, uh, to do. I'm, I'm wondering if you had a chance to talk to the jury afterwards and how they, uh, viewed sort of the family di- dynamic that you've laid out for us here. No, no, we've always had a really strict prohibition in Massachusetts of talking to them at all. It, the rule has changed recently. Um, but it's still pretty severe. So no, I never had a chance to talk to any of them, unfortunately. Yeah, that's um, that, that's too bad because it would be nice to hear, you know, what how, how that affected them. And, and you know, especially hearing that, I mean, like all families, not everything is is picture perfect. Um, you know, it, that's real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah. it's just interesting. Yeah. And it's that honesty. I feel like in credibility, you know, we talk about credibility on basically every episode. But I think that that's probably a huge part of, of this good result was that that you had everybody be very honest about how they were feeling. Yeah. You know, it's funny because so uh, the mom and the, and the two daughters are all just, you know, really, really beautiful and really charming. And it would be easy for them to come across as this perfect storybook trio, but they were so real and raw and honest with the jury that I think it took, took them out of the, the picture book and just made them really, really lovable. I, yeah. What I saw from the jury, particularly during the closing argument, the jurors loved those women. They really cared about those women. So um, I, I was also wondering, it sounds like you had a number of coworkers or friends, uh, you know, testify. Did you bring in a lot of what we like to refer to as sort of before and after witnesses to talk about how this had affected him and what kind of person he was uh, beforehand? We did a lot of stuff with beforehand, particularly with this guy was really safe, meticulous and stuff like that. We really didn't need to do much for after. Right. I mean, so they, he had such severe respiratory damage from the trach for so long that he, he breathed really loud. So by the time Wardir was done, people knew that they were dealing with someone who was very, very catastrophically injured. But we did want to talk a lot about before and the before being this guy follows rules, this guy acts safe, and this guy takes care of his stuff really, really well. Did, was he in the courtroom with you the entire trial? We brought him in for voir dire and one day of testimony. The rest of the time, we did not. Okay. Um, so I want to back up <clears throat> and ask a sort of a big, big picture question, John, especially for some of our um, newer lawyers, our younger lawyers, which is that this, this case had a lot of hurdles. I mean, one of the things you emailed us before we got started was, I mean, you had, you know, it were, you ended up being able to handle it all and get a great result, but just looking at it on paper, you've got this marijuana issue out there. You've got, you don't actually have the, the manufacture of the product and what's kind of a, or what, what, what fails is not the, the, um, the product that you sort of got in the case. He's made his own Jack. It's his equipment that he's bought himself. So he's not like on some job where an em- employer didn't tell him something. You've got the loss of consortium issue that you ended up handling well, but the wife's in a new relationship. I think a lot of people 
would be really scared by this case. <laughs> what, what made you say, yeah, I'm doing it. And I'm, you know, I'm going all the way. I'll go through trial. I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Well, a lot of people might've thought it was an intake mistake for sure. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Uh, including maybe my employers who are paying for the experts that I paid for. Who are <laughs> right. uh, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I just yeah. saw something. Yeah, yeah. you knew. <laughs> yeah, you know, I felt like I felt like there was something really wrong that that uh, that this guy was getting under this you know four or five six hundred pound machine, and nobody was telling him that that he shouldn't be. Right. Uh, and I, I just felt like we were going to get somewhere. We had a great expert, but I'll tell you is I did not try this case alone. I tried this case with um, Tim Wilton, who's my mentor and my friend. And <clears throat> at the beginning of your question, you mentioned young lawyers. I would say for younger and newer lawyers to not lose sight of the value of mentoring yeah. and not just necessarily sending things off to get a referral fee, which is nice business model, but to actually do these cases with somebody that you trust, who knows how to do them well, um, and who does them for the right reasons. And that was, that was just as important for me as to have that experience with Tim, um, and to do a good job for this family. Cause I'll tell you, even if the jury came back against us, this family felt heard and they mm -hmm. felt supported and it really would have been worth it. Even if we lost it, mm -hmm. I know it sounds crazy, but it really would have. Yeah. 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 I get that. No. And, and you're absolutely right about, uh, mentoring. I, I, I think the amount of, um, of successful trial lawyers, people who we've interviewed on this, uh, this podcast who, when they were young, uh, had a trial lawyer that they were able to work with and talk to and, and get advice from, uh, I know I, I had several, uh, and so it's, uh, it, it is incredibly important and it, and it really, uh, really helps. Um, I, I wanted to, to go back for a second to this issue of the, the fact that, that no other incidents had ever happened. Um, on the one hand, when I looked at this case, and I agree with Yvonne, that this probably, you know, looking at it on paper, this might have been a difficult case to take. Like, you're kind of like, well, eh, I'm not sure how, how good this case is. But, but on the other hand, it, it does sort of just make good common sense, which is, you know, you've got this very heavy uh, asphalt uh, melter that you've got to change the oil on. You got to get, you, you know, you, you got to get up under there somehow. You know, why not make something that's going to hold it up and make sure it doesn't slip off? I mean, so on the one hand, you've got that good sort of just good common sense argument. Why are you making it so there's not a good way to hold it up? But but then there is this other significant problem of, you know, well, it's never happened to anybody else. I'm just wondering, how did you address that at trial? The fact that the defense was arguing, if this is such a dangerous thing, why has it never happened before? So, um, yeah, really good point and something that we struggled with. And I, I think that there were two, two approaches that were helpful. Number one is one of their defenses was they were saying that Brian failed to follow the warnings on their machine and failed to follow the appropriate instructions on their machine. But they themselves failed to follow the warnings that the Jack manufacturer had given out. So there was kind of this, this really duplicitous kind of thing that they were doing there. Um, 
And then really, we just turned their argument about it never happened before and turned it into a foreseeability that, you know, they've sold thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these machines knowing full well that there are thousands of jacks out there, thousands of people who've never heard that they're not supposed to go under the machine when the jack's holding it up, tens of thousands of people. So, you know, this wasn't when is somebody going to get hurt? It was how bad. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, that's actually how we started setting the anchor to you because we started saying 35,000 of these machines sold for $14,000 a piece. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. So we, we, we flipped them on, flipped it on them the best that we could, but it, it definitely hurt that there were no recorded incidents of this happening. Well, in the, the, I mean, you know, I guess the one good thing that you had going for you is this sequent warning that they sent out with the Jack. I mean, that proves your foreseeability because it's not foreseeable. Why is sequent taking the time to warn about it? Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and then the other part of it is, is you mentioned early on, and I always hate it when manufacturers do this in cases, but when they, they try to look a, a, around the rest of the industry and say, well, none, and none of these other uh, manufacturers are having this happen either. Well, well, we don't know if those other manufacturers included the warnings from sequent, you know, and, and made sure that people knew not to get under there. It, it, you know, I always hate it when they talk about other manufacturers, cause it really shouldn't come into evidence, but. Um, yeah. So. That's exactly what they did. And it did sting. But what I tried to do and the judge let me was I opened that up with a hierarchy of design to flammable pajamas, the Ford Pinto, all of these different things. He let me argue in front of the jury and I cross-examined a couple of their experts about it. And we were talking about all these different types of things that were really, really dangerous that nobody knew until somebody did something about it. That's right. Um, and then there's also the, you know, it would it would be catastrophic for them in business if they were to put in a, a jack at the center of the A-frame as opposed to the sidewinder. That opened up for us the door to talk about how Ford survived, you know, right. moving the gas tanks. And, and so, um, so those defenses do hurt, but it does open the door to a lot of rebuttal stuff that is really helpful and might not be independently uh, admissible, you know, which is yeah. all those other cases and all those other times that people have said that bullshit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And well, it and, to be fine. No, it, it, no. And I, I think you're exactly right is, is, you know, because they want to use those arguments, but yeah, the, um, I mean, turning that back on them through uh, other examples and, and opening the door. I mean, it, it, ha you know, it happens all the time and it's, it's really shows, you know, great lawyering and, and, and very creative use in your cross-examination. So that's, that's always a, um, uh, a, a good thing to do during trial. Did you, yeah, um, I think the more you can, the more you can take those defenses, you know, and I mean, that's, that's not anything unique to me. The more you can take those defenses and make them yours, the better. And uh, the way that we always try to do it is what do we wish we could say, but we're not allowed to, and how does that fit into with their bullshit? <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's right. Yeah. Um, did you bring the machine or a machine into the courtroom for the jury to see? No, we'd originally requested a view and we were going to take them to see the machine, but then we ended up withdrawing the request. Um, we felt like the trial was going pretty well and that we wanted to get it to verdict as fast as possible. So what did you do? How did you... Um, 
you know, just from a, from a general sense, I guess, you know, maybe you did it through experts. How did you get them understanding sort of how the machine worked in its scale and sort of the danger presented by it? Um, especially when it was jacked up. Yeah. Our expert was amazing. Um, so we did it through him. We used a lot of photographs. Um, we used a lot of their diagrams, their internal blueprints and things like that. And then we had, um, the actual jack that Brian had created, and then a bunch of exemplar jacks that were our, you know, our, our excuse me, our alternative design made by the same manufacturer, Sequin. Okay. So, but yeah, it was mostly photographs and testimony. Gotcha. I guess the machine would have been really hard to get there. I forgot. I knew it was big, but I also forgot how heavy it was, even yeah. though that's why he got so badly hurt. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we could have gotten that into the courthouse at Worcester. I do think the judge was seriously considering um, doing the view for us, but we were at the point where we thought getting the case to the jury as fast as possible was our priority. So we just dropped it. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Well, and especially if, 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 and it's always hard to tell because, you know, if, whether or not the jury's getting, but if they seem to be understanding what you're saying, then having them do a, a view becomes less and less important. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of different witnesses did a really nice job of explaining it and the photos are there. And I, yeah, I felt like that, that, that wasn't an issue of contention. And I feel like the jury got it very quick. Now what the jury was really thinking about was, is this the user's fault for potentially forgetting to put in the pin or for using a jack that he made himself? Or is it their fault for not telling him that he can't go underneath that thing when it's held up by a jack? Right. So right. we just didn't think seeing the machine was going to help. Yeah. And I mean, you do, you kind of never know how that's going to go necessarily when they're looking at a you know thing and what they're thinking and, and how way off they might be as they're looking at it. I mean, it, is, it can be a risk to do that. You know, you just reminded me of something that I totally forgot about. So one of the big reasons we withdrew the request to do a view was one of their experts was a metallurgist from Minnesota. And he talked about how he had kept the front nose of the A-frame up in a sling when he was doing these tests to see how bad our guy's jack was and that it had slipped out of um, the sling. And the reason he put it in the sling was because when he was letting the machine fall, he didn't want it to gouge his cement floor. So he'd said how he'd let this fell out of the sling and it hit the cement floor and it gouged the floor. And we were like, and he didn't produce us the video of this thing gouging the floor. So we took that during the cross-examination and during the close and was like, this was such a violent, loud, huge, horrible destruction to your floor uh, that you wouldn't even show us the video because you didn't want the jury to see the video. And that came across so compelling that we didn't want them to see the machine and be underwhelmed. Yeah. Right. right. I totally forgot until you said that. Yeah. But that was one of the big conversations we had. Man, that had to play well, knowing that like they're sitting there thinking about this, this dropped on someone on a person. And this guy's talking about the precautions he took because he was worried about it gouging his floor. Right. His concrete floor. Yeah, I'm getting a goosebump because that was one of the things I said was they took more care to protect his floor than their own customers' bodies. Yeah. but yeah, that was that was a huge part of the conversation as to why we withdrew our request for the view. I totally gotcha. 
So, uh, John, I, one question I had, and I, this is just a, a part of Massachusetts law. Is there any sort of comparative fault analysis under Massachusetts or um, did they try and put any any uh, at least a percentage of fault onto Brian? Yeah, so there is. However, there's also a strict liability claim um, for the negligent design. If it's beats a certain standard, I believe it's that uh, it's unreasonably dangerous. Right. So they did apportion faults to Brian, and I believe it was 52 to 48 in our favor. Okay. But because we'd won on the strict liability claim, that did not decrease the verdict or the, or the family recovered at all. Okay. It, and interestingly, the judge instructed the jury on that. Okay. The judge instructed the jury that if you go more than 50, more than 49% to the manufacturer, the family will recover nothing. Right. And if you, and these are different instructions, obviously, if the manufacturer is not liable under the strict liability standard, the recovery will be reduced by the percentage you apportion to the plaintiff. So the jury was actually well instructed on those two. Yeah, that's points, nice. Which doesn't always happen. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, and then the other part of the that I was going to ask is the damages. How how did you present the damages that you were? Did you ask for a specific number, or did you give them a range, or how did you come up with uh, with the ask? So we just in Massachusetts, I think it was fifteen or sixteen, got the right to ask for a number. Um, we were in federal court, not state. Uh, we'd addressed it with the judge. He asked me not to do that. He didn't order me against it. So I did not ask for a specific number. I did do something similar to a per diem with the, you know, wanted ad. Right. Here's, here's, here's the job. What would they have to pay you to do the job? And of course the job is to be Brian and to be his wife. Yeah. Uh, but we did not give a number. Okay. The only numbers they had were, um, for future medical care. And we gave a low, medium, and high um, range to which they could do for future medical care. They actually went higher than our high, which is really good. I wow. was really did yeah, I was really disappointed with the pain and suffering. Um, I felt like the pain and suffering was a big failure on my part. I think we only got seven hundred and fifty thousand for Brian's pain and suffering. Oh, so, so the, so the verdict, yeah, cause it doesn't show on the judgment that we got. So the six and a half million, um, the, the, I guess the, uh, 5,750,000 essentially was for future care. Correct. Okay. And then 750 for uh, pain and suffering. Okay. Which, yeah. Which is really yeah. not what we were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that definitely, uh, I, I, I can see how that would be disappointing and I don't want to in any way say that the, the verdict wasn't a great verdict because it was on a, on an extremely difficult case, but I, mm -hmm. I can see from your standpoint how that would have been, uh, would have been disappointing. Oh yeah. I, I thought that they were going to launch, but yeah, it was, it was just strange. So we, we gave them low, medium and high for future care. We thought they were going to go medium and we thought they were really going to launch them on, um, pain and suffering, but they went higher than what we asked for on future care and very low on pain and suffering. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one of the tricky things about pain and suffering and why we're always trying to think about different ways to do it and different ways to help people think about it and, you know, trying to figure out what we can say and can't say. And I, I just feel like there's some people who are always more comfortable thinking about the concrete stuff and the line items than 
than the stuff that's hard to put a dollar amount on. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in federal court, there's, it's unanimous. I always feel like that there's a certain amount of negotiating in a unanimous uh, system as opposed to a, a majority. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like verdicts come down in order to get liability votes. Uh, yeah, we're in Georgia. We're unanimous here. And so, yeah, we, uh, we're yeah, familiar. We, 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 we've seen it happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're very familiar. Um, well, uh, well, well, John, this has been just a great uh, discussion about the uh, Goodrich versus um, Simline Inc. and Garlock Equipment Company uh, case. I, I just want to make sure, is there anything that we haven't talked about that case that you want to make sure our listeners know of? No, I just wanted to thank you guys. I, I love the um, I love the podcast, and it's really exciting to be on here. So thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. No, well, this, I mean this is a great case. You did a, a fantastic job, and and you know, and I, I know we've already said this, but it, you know, I can't stress, you know, looking at this case on paper, it, it would have been a difficult case. Now, obviously, with with great clients, catastrophic injury. I mean that that certainly makes up for a lot. And we've always said that you know when you've got credibility and great clients on your side. I mean, that goes a long ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, here's, here's the thing, right. Is that the greatest attorneys are, are bringing their best cases to trial for sure. But, you know, there's something to be said for these cases where maybe it's not what um, the top tier lawyers would be taking, but it's something that you can do something with. And if you have a good mentor and if you have somebody who's willing to take the risk with you and you're willing to put it in the work, um, you can make things happen in court. It's not as, it's not as cut and dry as a lot of people make it out to be, in my opinion. No, I agree. And, 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 and juries, uh, you know, there, a lot can be said about it, but juries, in my opinion, generally try to do, try to get it right, try to do the right thing and, and, and do justice. I mean, they, they really work hard at it. Well, yeah. I don't know what you would say about this, but here's, here's what I think. Um, if you don't truly care about your clients, uh, the jury's not going to. But if you right. truly, truly are, and I mean, you have to be a really on, ruthlessly honest person with yourself. Yeah. If you're going to put your everything into a case and really come in and communicate how much you care and, about these people and how much you love them, it's going to have an effect on the outcome. And it's yeah. going to be very, very significant, especially compared to a sterile defense attorney that's going from courtroom to courtroom defending the same people. That's right. That's right. I'd say that all the time to some of our uh, young lawyers, you know, if you don't care about your case, then the jury sure isn't going to care. I mean, you better you better come in there with some passion and you better care about it and you better uh, fight for your your clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think that affects it. And I think the jury I think the juries can feel that, too. They can feel when a witness is going out on a limb for you and talking about things and trusting in your relationship and i'll tell you what you don't get that shit in your conference room yeah yeah right that's exactly right that's exactly right so true or like in the first three conversations you know you gotta keep layering them on put in the time yeah put in put in the time exactly and realize that these relationships are strategic and important you know it's not a waste of time just to go get to know these people yeah oh really it's really the difference and and it helps them it helps them to actually feel like somebody cares. I can't tell you how many clients I have that left another attorney because their calls aren't getting returned. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Never, never mind. They don't have a, a strong bond, but just because their calls aren't getting returned, it's like, come on. Yeah. 
No, and I, I, I mean, I remember uh, you, our our law partner is on the disciplinary board for Georgia, and I think the number one reason why uh, you get calls at the disciplinary board is because of lawyers not returning phone calls. So it's yeah. it's not because of uh, stolen election, theories. right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. It's <laughs> not. Good to know. Um, not typically, uh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> One can hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, John, uh, we appreciate you so much. Let me remind everybody we've been uh, uh, talking about the Goodrich versus Garlock Equipment Company case uh, in Simline Inc. case, uh, and it resulted in an $11,618,700 verdict in a U.S. District Court in Massachusetts. And our guest has been John Martin, a partner at KJC Law Firm in Boston and Worcester. And um, and you can look him up at kjclawfirm.com. So, uh, John, thank you so much for your time. Oh, guys, thank you. This was great. A lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.